0: Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Mark Swakey. Mark is a CMO of some experience. Today, we're going to be looking at how people can make braver decisions. He's the author of Boring to Brave. And with a title like that, how can you resist uh, reading it? So get out there and buy the book. But we're going to be talking about the kind of mistakes people make when they're picking their CMO, um, the blind spots that leaders have, the damage that they can do by having a closed mind and deciding that they think they already know best. The mistakes people make when hiring marketing resources, either not valuing them appropriately, or trying to get them to do stuff that isn't in your best interest, because, again, you've fixed your mind on something that may have worked in the past, or may have worked for a company that's a 1,000 times your size 10 years ago. So, Mark, welcome.
1: Thank you. Uh, Lovely introduction. Thank you very much.
0: Excellent. Would you mind giving the audience a quick 60 seconds on your background so people understand where you're coming from?
1: Absolutely. So I was a journalist to start with, always uh, as a child, admired Clark Kent a little bit more than Superman and wanted to be part of that that difficult, busy, awkward, loud and, and hectic newsroom, which was lush. I think I was probably among the last generation to do the newspapers the traditional way. So I came up through local papers, regional evening newspapers, and then national newspapers, and finally was editor of Marketing Week magazine, which was fun, which gave me a jump into working for agencies for a little while, a deeply disappointing experience, I can tell you. (laughs) And and, um, finally took a, a left turn into B2B tech, where I've been since as Global marketing leadership, so working on messaging, positioning, and growth across the world. So
0: one of the things that I've seen a lot of is corporate cowardice. So let's just kick off with a bombshell. I've seen so many organizations fail to think deeply about the reasons why they're failing, and they run away from those conversations. And certainly from the book, it's very clear that you've got to run towards failure and look for the bad news. Why is it that so many leaders run from the bad news and would prefer to shoot the messengers?
1: I think it's partly because everybody is copying somebody else. If you think about it, whenever you're briefed something and you look at the brief, and certainly from a marketer's point of view, the disappointment part happens right from the start. Greatness is rarely in the brief. I would love a brief that says, listen, Here's the situation. Here's where we are in the market. Here's who we've got to beat. Here's who we're going after. Here's our product. What can you do that will dis- distinguish us, elevate us, and make us great? Simple as that. Why are you instead what the brief generally is an accumulation of known data. It's accumulation of everything that person understands about the problem rather than a will or a license to get there's nobody there's nobody in the um function outside of marketing really that is tasked with bravery. Everybody-
0: I've got to challenge you on that. I mean, the CEO should be, the salespeople should be.
1: The salespeople aren't necessarily tasked with bravery. They can accommodate bravery into their methodology, and they should, but they're not tasked with bravery. They're tasked with selling. They're tasked with conversion, getting the deal across the line. No.
0: Well, bad selling is all about they're trying to just focus on the numbers. The best sellers that I know are- playing a short medium
1: and long game but long Um, game is not the same as bravery where's the bravery Marcus
0: well hang on you in order to be able to challenge your customers you've got to really know your shit and then you've got to be able to confront them when they're doing very that's true God knows how often I've had to confront my customers and say Mark how do I tell you that you're the problem
1: that's true. Like That's absolutely hire. true. Conceded. So, look, the bravery is hard to find. It's hard yeah. to be brave in in a company where the where the overriding narrative is rely on both data yeah. and examples which we've seen before, i.e., competitors. Right. So, yeah. basically, if you're following the template set down by a successful competitor, you're doing a number of things wrong. Firstly, the whole point of marketing and selling and product innovation is to try and distinguish you, not make mm. you the same as anyone else. Secondly. I remember <laughs> I remember when I was very young in an agency this was back in 2010 and we were going after O2 and somebody piped and it was an internal communications brief and I was ready to let's pile in what we know about O2 but let's also sit there and figure out exactly what we need to do to win this brief right mm-hmm. and some bright spark who happened to be the head of internal communications at the time came and said well don't worry I've got it all sorted because I won BT Cellnet back in the back in the day, and I've got it. I've got the template on my on my. And BT Cellnet turned to A2, and so I, I already know how to win this. It's. I was like, well, hang on. BT Cellnet was like ten years ago, and different people in a different market that doesn't exist anymore with a different brief and different needs. What are we? What are we putting the same template down? What are we even taking any notice for? That's it's it, reliance on what you know from other people is not going to win you the business. You need especially in the climate we're going into
0: well the, the, the challenge then is if we look at the way people behave they'll normally try and serve certain needs like certainty significance a need to contribute a need to feel loved a need to feel part of something and they, those needs will cause them to override their values and what I've seen time and time and time again is because of the unnecessary and un, poorly thought through pressure that leadership and investors create downward, you end up getting people saying and doing very stupid things. And I think it, uh, you talk about it where uh, companies go from being brilliant to stupid in the blink of an eye. I see this as soon as they bring in the wrong type of investor, where they were out to solve a problem and really look after their customers. And the minute they start chasing the unicorn myth, which only 3% will ever attain, and the other 97% will probably die crashing on the rocks in its pursuit, and they end up with a horrible business that's a nasty place to work, where the people who originally joined for uh, being part of that mission, now feel like they've been betrayed, and so they
1: go. That's a much deeper question in a way, which we may or may not have time to answer today, which is, how good is a founder's understanding of what values are? Like, are they simply there to attract new talent and boast a great culture and and tick off the box that says, we've dealt with that and we're really proud of our values? If your values don't survive, the next move, when the pressure's on, and the, the investor pressure is on, then they're not really values, are they? They they can't be if they don't command the way you do things, and you can't get that past your investors when the pressure is on. Are they still values? I'm not sure. Well,
0: I, I think what happens because um uh, as you, you know, there's the old saying, Barnum, uh, Peter Barnum said, "You can't uh, con um an honest man." Well, I think the same thing happens as their founders' greed starts to become the dominant force and the line blurs. Because when they first start out, they might be looking for the money, the funding, in order to really drive the business and grow. But when it starts to be about the exit, then the values get compromised and the need shifts because they've created the conditions. where now they, in order to survive the next cut, they have to deliver against the, uh, the new objectives.
1: So are you are you suggesting, and I'm interested genuinely, I'm not, you know, I'm not looking for provocation, but are you suggesting that when values are given up in the quest for greed and, and wealth and, and success, do you think they're giving up their values consciously?
0: I'm not entirely sure that they are, but I think what happens is because people's attention is so focused on the raise, it becomes an obsession. And they then begin to lose sight of the reasons why they were doing it. Yes, And you've got to be really careful about understanding the difference between good money, bad money and dumb money. Good money brings with it expertise, their network, they're supportive, they play the long game. They want the business to succeed, and they recognize that their payout. Is commensurate on creating a sustainable and good business yes. that has lots of happy customers, happy partners, and happy employees who are highly engaged. If you've got all of that, you've got a massively profitable business that runs itself, is resilient, and people like it. So when times are tough, they give it lots of latitude.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: If, on the other hand, your bad money, and you're thinking exit, exit, exit. And you have got 45 um, uh, investments, and four of them are, have to make it out because you only need 10, 15 percent to wash your face. And remember, yeah. the British French Capital Association, for years, I haven't looked recently, thought, and this was in boom times, thought that 8 percent annual return was good.
1: Yeah, that's well, the I British mean, version. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I, I. I remember I, I spoke to you about businesses, otherwise great businesses, crammed with genuine talent and ambition and a brilliant product, but that simply embrace stupidity overnight. And mm. I, I remember in 2020, I was in um, a consultancy mode. I'd closed down an agency that I'd run for three or four years. I was looking for my next role, which turned out to be mentioned me, which was a great couple of years. But in 2020, I was consulting and I got this really... Really fabulously paid gig doing day rates for this um, private equity backed commercial property company. I'm not going to go too much into it, but I'm telling you right now, I will never be that rich again. I mean, my wife was seriously impressed with me. Um, uh, but and fear then she can. Wasn't. Yeah, and then she wasn't. <laughs> fear, can, fear makes us stupid. So we make idiots of ourselves and our organizations by embracing it. We let fear turn us from skilled operators with know how and knowledge into absolute morons. So here's what happened that summer. I would sit. They didn't have any digital or marketing experience. And actually, I don't bring digital expertise. I hire digital expertise. I bring marketing expertise. But they were, they were looking for digital expertise and marketing strategy to generate quality leads for the sales guys to follow up with. And that's, that's all clear first. I'd sit in a management meeting every week and give an overview of the latest results. The problem was, every time they saw a rise or a fall in the metrics, and I'm talking weekly a rise or a full digital clicks, engagement with content, visitors to the website, or or someone filling in an online form, for example, they would act. They would make a decision. And every single week, a change in the numbers would have them setting us a new direction and reversing something would already painstakingly decided on, or just changing the strategy altogether. Full U-turns would occur in the space of a couple of weeks. And I I would say to them, listen, let's not look at these metrics every week. Let's not, we'd act if there was a fall and we'd act if there was a spike. Don't react to the headline. Yeah. And they'd ask the team to track and measure everything. And in measuring everything, you'd actually be measuring nothing rather than waiting for any specific strategy to play out and see the gains or not. And nothing I said over many months of working with them altered their insistence on seeing this real-time data. So, and panic would set in. And I would say, listen, let's not panic. Let's, we've decided this is the strategy. We know why we're doing it. Let's let it play out. Here's a genuine, genuine conversation I had with my clients. It was like, hey, Mark, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I wondered, Mark, if you could shoot me, for example, a quick email with the latest marketing metrics we're seeing. And I'd say, well, I can, but I presented a full overview to you last Friday and today's Wednesday, and I can take a dive into HubSpot and give you a sense of what I'm seeing. But ultimately, I'm not sure you're going to see anything worth looking at in terms of, of, of change. And I and he'd say, sure, I get that. But can you just give me a sense of progress since Wednesday? And I'd say, Honestly, again, there's a good reason why normally you'd probably look to report marketing like this monthly or certainly no more frequently than once a week, especially when you've only just recently launched your first ever digital strategy. And checking the data too early can increase the chance of us seeing what will be false positives or negatives. And he says, yeah, sure, i get you. Mark, between us, I totally understand. I'm totally with you. I know what you're saying. I say, cool, cool. So he says, so will you send me some results over later today? And I go, but I thought you just said we understood we're on the same. Can I ask what's behind this constant thirst for, for the metrics? Is there something specific that can help? I'm trying to be a good consultant here. And he says, between you and me, I know it's a dumb thing to want to check the metrics three times a week or whatever, but that's how often they ask me. And I'm having to have the conversation above me, which is why I need to have it with you. So I say to him, okay, why don't you let me have the conversation above you, if you know with you there, and we'll do it together because I can explain to them why it's not best, best marketing practice or, or commercial practice to send this data up and down the food chain with such frequency. And he says, probably best for me to have the conversation so you don't have to. Have a good weekend if you could just get me the data. right. So I'm sending this dumb data up the food chain. They're making decisions, sending it back to down the food chain. And for all their incredible, like they were all Yale and Harvard and they were all the brightest financial minds. They, on they, they, they were they were the guys that don't look like me. They wore beautiful blazers and sparkling white shirts, and they genuinely knew their stuff. And yet we were turning great into stupid overnight. And I was and I was embracing it. I was like, listen, I've tried, but I am now one of the people I hate in my book. I'm embracing stupid because I'm being told this is how I keep my well-paid daily. Yeah. I, I, I'm fighting it, but. But what they, you, you
0: notice, but you notice you're put on a really well-paid gig. At what point did your motivation shift from keeping the well-paid fees to actually being able to look yourself in the eye? And then I left. I I gave it up. Right, of course you did. But there must up. have come a point, and this is one of the challenges that um, I see happening all the time, and we're seeing this. This is reflected in this great resignation with a great attrition, McKinsey's calling it now. And it's because we get to a point where we say enough is enough. And when we have that choice, we'll take it, Yeah. which is why three quarters of the US workforce will have looked for a new job by the end of this year. Yeah. Three quarters of people in technology worldwide will have looked for a new job this year. Now,
1: that's interesting. Where'd you get that from?
0: The seventy three percent came from U.S. Department. Uh, Unbelievable. Statistics. And
1: and you can bet that not all of them are just looking for you know a new and better paid gig because that's you know within a they're looking because they are disenfranchised and disillusioned. They thought they were buying into new, cool, innovative, and empowered, and actually what they're buying into is fear. Somebody's fear.
0: You're buying into the fear vicariously, but it's being driven by bad, lazy, greedy thinking, which is over emphasizing one part of the equation. When you've got a complex system where there are interdependent moving parts and you tinker at the edges when that system has found an uneasy equilibrium, you start to create dissonance. Yeah, And when you do that often enough, frequently enough, you do what you've just described, and you create confusion because that creates ambiguity. Yeah. Ambiguity is the mother of all fuck-ups. If you want mismatched expectations, disappointment, people to try and do the right thing and then get punished for doing the wrong thing yeah, and not meeting an un, uh, unstated expectation, then is it any wonder that you create the conditions where people well, don't trust leadership and management?
1: And the they, markers are not agree. I- in the spirit of the podcast that you run and the rules that you lay down for your guests and, and what makes it such a lively conversation every time I want to challenge you. So I want to lay down on record that you have an overlapping agenda with me, an overlapping view, but where we differ is I don't think I can get there. And I'd love to hear your take on this. I don't think I can get there to land read, and poor behavior. And I personally think it stops at fear ignorance and stupidity i don't know if it goes down the road of greed and bad behavior like into an evil sense so for example one of the things i think about and one of the things i spoke to you about was i am at the moment in between roles doing some consulting i'm 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 presenting i'm fronting a a campaign for sap company armass tomorrow i'm i'm doing a whole range of stuff and I'm biding my time and, and thinking about the right job. And what comes into it for the right job for me is, is there a mission that I can get behind? Is there a brilliant product that mm-hmm. I can really sell? Are the people great? I need to be around great people. I can't be around, you know, there was a, an interview, a stage in a, in an advanced interview process last week, which really put me off. They were looking for, let me, how can I put it? I was asked, what we're, we're, we're very concerned about how passionate you are around brand and growth and marketing we're worried that you're going to suck the oxygen away from other people on the leadership team is that a possibility and I sort of said (laughs) I don't know them I mean I don't know the other people like if the people are good and great and no of course not I'm I want to be a member of a team I want to be behind a mission that feels great I want to be inspired by brilliant people but then we've all been around people who are less great than we need them to be and I'm not talking about sucking the oxygen, I'm talking about covering for others and getting a job done, just getting the things done that need to be done. If you look at any marketing role remit or job description out there right now, there's no listening or learning or acceptance that somebody skilled and experienced who knows this shit is going to come in and audit and figure out and put together a brilliant marketing strategy. What they do is they say. Have you done 10 years or more of this? Have you done exactly this thing before? And even worse, how are you going to grow our company through digital or through product marketing? And you go, wait, wait, wait. You've already decided what you want. You don't need me. You don't need a skilled marketer with all of this, these experiences and listening skills and creativity to bear on the problem. You just need a warm robot to sit in that seat. Right, but that's
0: and- because of a fundamental misunderstanding of marketing's function. Marketing has sadly become a function of what you can do as efficiently and at large scale as possible, as opposed to creating uh, engagement and conversation with customers, with living, breathing human beings, because living, breathing human beings make the decision to buy your stuff. And living, breathing human beings make the decision to put their signature, whether electronic or otherwise, on a contract. And they're reluctant to part with their money or the company's money, and more importantly, put their careers at stake when they don't have certainty.
1: And where is certainty at the moment? Ask in twenty twenty two, if ever. But in twenty twenty two, in business, in life, where is certainty at the moment? And this is this is what this is what kills me. Is is?
0: But you're, you're assuming, Mark, that people are rational. And this is the the mistake economists made for many many years when they uh, assumed that human beings were rational. If you've ever met a human being, you will know they are anything but. And if if you've been part of a family, you'll know just how fucked up human beings are. Yeah. Um, so the the honest truth is that and um, what they do is they do what feels familiar and they go on to autopilot. So what they do is they cut and paste the same job description that caused them to hire the person who failed yeah, in the previous role. Exactly. They do no thinking. And I, I'm going to I'm going to push back because I do see that it is often fueled by people who don't think about the human cost and the consequences. Answer me this. The 60 to 100,000 jobs have been lost in SaaS, in big SaaS in the last two months. Mm -hmm. The companies behind those, do you think they are impoverished and poor or awash with cash?
1: No. Well, if you look at, for example, Twilio, they said that their redundancy program was nothing to do with, it was to do with strategy and becoming profitable rather than anything going horribly wrong. If you look at, Twitter, that's clearly for a very different reason. If you look at the people losing their jobs at Lyft and Stripe just recently in the in the last few days alone, no, these businesses clearly aren't dealing with poverty. They are, they're trying to make the best guess possible based on what they know and everything they feel is certain. My question back to you is why would anybody, especially let's take, forget historically, why would anybody in 2022 try and figure out what certainty is going to look like tomorrow or beyond? I mean, it's just not happening. And so, so, to go back to what your definition of marketing, I'd like to add to your definition of marketing, which you said was about generating engagement and customer conversations. If I had a three second pitch to promote marketing and what it's for, it's literally there to generate growth. Yeah. Now, growth is the only thing, honestly, if you were going to pick one metric rather than the Incredible rainbow of SaaS metrics that I'm we've with had that we've had uh, instilled upon us by those looking for certainty at everything the one metric you should go for is growth, and if your marketing company function is in whatever way needed is generating valuable, sustainable and repeatable and, growth, we're done
0: and through that, the key question everyone in every role has to ask is, does what I am doing add? or subtract from that objective, the job to be done. Because every business, every CEO has only one line in their job description, which matters, which is grow. Simple, it's a very simple brief. And if you grow well, then you grow in a sustainable way, which means that you don't have to keep going back and doing stupid things. Part of the problem is that because of the pressure that comes from greedy people, Who are quite happy to lay off hundreds of thousands of people in the midst of a really difficult time? It's already tough enough with inflation and interest rates and everything else, but they're making a decision. I understand why they're doing it, but you have to ask the question is there a better way? And actually, there is a better way. Yeah,
1: yeah, there is. And and
0: it starts with when they had cheap money it was easy to wait 18 months, two years, three years for a customer to break even because no one cared about that because we didn't measure that. Mm -hmm. And there was lots more money because we'd just go for another round, yeah? And if we were showing the growth trajectory that the investors wanted, which showed revenue growth, pipeline growth, and uh, new logos, if we could demonstrate that, even if those customers churned, it didn't matter, we didn't really measure that, we'd prefer to brush that under the carpet. Yeah, so you can't grow a business successfully if you're letting half of them go out the door every three years.
1: Do you know what? One of the most admirable things about the preparation you do for your guests is to challenge them with the single notion of, I don't want anyone here just moaning, I want solutions so that we are uh, at least useful. And again, in that spirit, Marcus, what you're talking about, I fully buy into at this point. You go. For me, the most valuable, tangible commercial successes that people can in, uh, embark on, the most, the most valuable strategies, happen to align. They just happen to align with what's going to most empower and inspire people to love their work and do their best work. They just happen to be interlinked like this. The problem is, right now, what you'll find in, I reckon, 85 90% of SaaS companies with the market we face and the bad news coming out every day is a retrench, shrink to fit and hold tight strategy. It's a responsible. It's goes, What the like just hold on tight, close your eyes, and hopefully we'll be okay, right? We'll shrink to fit. The most successful strategy you can embark on right now, which again happens to be the one that's going to fire up your people and give them every motivation to want to be the best, to stay with you, to help you through is to invest in keeping your plan intact, your growth plan that you made in November 21, December 21, and presented in January 22, stay as close and as loyal and as faithful to that as you can. It doesn't matter. There's only one marketing rule of thumb that really counts for anything. Any marketer will know it. Others need to be convinced. But the fact that it's um, phrased in a mathematical equation format helps convince. It's this. If your share of voice is larger than your share of market, you will grow. If your share of voice is less than your share of market, you will shrink. Now, what that means is if you you might not grow during a recession by investing in share of voice, but you certainly won't shrink. And by the time you come out the recession, long term, you will do the business and do everything that that CEO needed to do, which was grow the business and be successful. And if they're that way inclined, which they are, get the payout and be financially successful too. If you try and see it through, hold tight, wrap bandages around everybody with a a safety pin, and then hope for the best, pull the lid down. Not only are you going to uninspire, you're going to uninspire the salespeople. The salespeople won't be inspired to be brave, as you said before, which will be to tell the truth, and be that valuable partner, and that long-term relationship, which costs customers love and companies need. They'll be inspired to get the cheap, shitty deals across the line in order to hit their numbers Absolutely. And, and, to and, lie and, ring, and
0: ring the bell, and withhold yeah. information, Yeah, to exaggerate, to sell Blue Sky
1: when it's not even on the fucking roadmap. Yeah, I don't know if you saw this, but I haven't verified this for myself by looking, but I saw something this morning that suggested, anyone who lives in London, and London exclusively, I believe, because I think it's the only, the underground was the only place these posters were ever on show, is what I learned this morning. I didn't know that. But those fabulous old number seven Lynchburg, Tennessee stories, the long-form copy posters that um, Jack Daniels tell all over the tube, which you have no, you have no will against it. You'll notice them. You can't help but notice them. They are distinct. They are read. Long-form copy that's read. They are loved and remembered, and you can spot them a mile off, have just been replaced by the most generic, awful photo of young people in a bar saying, great nights out, we're made of this or whatever. It was the most generic looking, I mean, you wouldn't be able to pick it Are up we, in a lineup. Just like
0: everyone else.
1: Yeah, you wouldn't we, remember it in a lineup. Like, and it's that kind of thinking, it's like what somebody there, it's like that's for true, has made, they've read the data and gone, right, well, nothing we ever knew is correct no instincts, no, this data says 0.4% uplift in something or other, let's go here.
0: And this is the thing that's really frustrating me at the moment, because first of all, marketing used to be involved with actually speaking to living, breathing customers, and certainly listening to them. That's been replaced by becoming data monkeys. The SDR function has divorced itself from relationship building. And it's all about this, the scale and pace that you can try and drive transactional conversations, that never a relationship. And to build on Mark's point, the moment you stop getting share of voice and that share of voice starts to shrink, you start becoming invisible. Yeah. Um, and the, the difference between Bourneville and Cadbury, how many of you have in the UK bought a Bourneville product in Definitely. the last 10 years? I don't um, think
1: i I know what it looks like. I've never bought one.
0: Right. Well, Bourneville used to be the number one brand before World War II. Cadbury's continued to advertise, despite the fact there was no milk, no sugar, and no cocoa throughout World War II. And when they came out of it, they dominated the UK market. Now, the reality is there are example after example of those organizations that learned to double down on getting their voice out there, being in front of customers and talking to them, listening to them trying to diagnose the unmet need, the undiagnosed need that everyone else, instead of going bland, I mean, I I walk down an English high street and I don't know where I am because it all looks the same. The only time you can ever remember is if it's an old town uh, where they've got some lovely old Tudor buildings or something like that. And I can vaguely remember Henley. That's about it, of all the towns in England um, that I've been outside of London, that's it.
1: But it goes further, Marcus, because you, when you say data monkey, like there's clearly a role for data, but what we've forgotten, and you talk about human to human beings, you know, and and communicating as people, what we've forgotten is what we love about people. What we love about, so this, so I'm just looking at this photograph now, of this new Jack Daniels, and you realize that Jack Daniels itself is an amazing brand, but wouldn't stand out on a shelf without that kind of marketing that's always prided itself on. Whereas now it says a stadium seat isn't nearly as comfy as a bar stool. Jack Daniels make it count. And I can't, I, 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 can't, I couldn't even, re- I saw this this morning. I couldn't even remember the headline to tell you this, I couldn't remember it. And so there's this chapter in the book that I wrote called, when you think you're Han Solo, but you're actually C-3PO. Anyone of a certain age, given the choice of being C-3PO and Han Solo and who they relate to more, they obviously go for the sexy guy, the wisecracking guy with a blaster in waistcoat that make jobfers look cool, and he's flawed, he's risky, but he he's the hero. Or you go for this kind of shiny, non-flawed, golden robot who talks like a ro- His appearance is flawless, he's subservient, Same. he's data-led, he's literally data-led, his manner is pointlessly formal and subservient, and he's absolutely risk-averse, and you- I I took (laughs) I took a shot at writing C three PO's LinkedIn profile in the book, and and sort of and and saying how many of your LinkedIn profiles look and feel like this. I speak six million languages. I am you know the reason you want to be Han Solo in those early films is because he took risks, made wisecracks, and was deeply flawed. He he took he made you want to be braver. But actually, when we come out of the cinema, where we want to be Han Solo, not C three PO. And we walk into our offices, suddenly we turn into a droid. And not a cool droid like R2D2, who has the the data, but also has some barefaced cheek and attitude. We turn into the subservient dude. And why do we allow ourselves to switch to something we'd never choose to be? And the reason is fear. The reason is, you know, we have already, rather than paying for being distinct and elevating us and making ourselves great, you... Your, your marketing budget ends up being spent on anonymity, irrelevance, and measurement of nothing over you know, measuring the right stuff. I more or less agree with you, but I take it
0: one step further, and I think it's down to attachment. Buddha had it right. Attachment is the route to all misery. Attachment to the outcome, attachment to seeing things done in a particular way because you bring a bunch of biases with you, And we're deeply flawed creatures filled with biases. And these biases are filters on the world and to what we can accept, what we can't accept. And our natural instinct is to first look for what feels familiar. And that's why we tend to go down these um, old well-trammeled paths, even though they're out of date. And this is why when you're recruiting senior executives in this marketplace, yes, you need some people who are a safe pair of hands. And you need to be ready to handle the friction that will occur when those people try and constrain the people who are creative. You need both. You can't have one without the other and thrive through this economy. This is my fifth recession. And it's all about your ability to adapt and stay calm under the pressure. The ones who cave, the ones who are sat there panicking uh, and reading the data every 10 minutes and then making decisions on the basis of the headline of the moment, uh, so in confusion. And now when you sow confusion among your ranks, you've now created the cause for dissent. you created the cause for conflict because now it's not my fault, it's their fault. Uh, we're doing what we were told to do. We're doing our best. And now everyone is blaming.
1: Listen, I, I, by the way, it's annoying to me that I quote... George Lucas and Star Wars, and then you go ahead and quote Buddha and just outshine me that way. There's a reason why you're the host of this podcast. (laughs) Um, But but my.
0: It's because I'm boring and I always hated Star Wars, but I absolutely love the metaphor. Yeah. yeah. It's a classic hero's journey. And as sellers, we have to be by our customers' side in their story where they are the hero.
1: Why why would you? Why would you? Look, something I said to mention me just before I left, I was stood up at um, a company meeting and said listen we're about to go into a an environment in which bravery will be at a premium like no like the common sense yeah. approach will be retrenched. and yet we're selling something new in marketing we're selling a new discipline a new marketing a new a- a ingredient to the marketing function in in referral and advocacy something relatively new how are we supposed without modeling bravery ourselves how are we meant to convince any company to be brave enough to accept our premise of something new, rather than failing through something they know or trying something new that could inc- incremental. We have to model it ourselves and be brave enough ourselves and not retrench. And I think one one of the things, oh, sorry, you were going to say something. Well, no, you,
0: you you've made a really important point. If you want people to trust you, you have to give trust first. If you want people to be vulnerable, you have to have the courage to be vulnerable first. If you want people to let you in and be intimate, you have to let them in and be intimate first. You lead by example, and then people reflect back what you project out. Yeah, yeah. If you're being timid, your employees are going to be timid. Well, there you go. And
1: the timidity for me is, you talked about Bourneville and Cadbury. For me, the COO's job, let him or her be the one that builds the necessary processes and templates for success because something's got to be templated and automated. But in marketing and sales, unless you're treating every single situation, every single customer's need as distinct, there shouldn't be any templates. You're this is not where templates live. Yes, I can automate a lot of my marketing through the likes of the CRMs and the, you know, the functionality and the data and the, and, the, and the marketing operations, but I don't want the messaging or the um the actual execution to be templated. I want to be, this is where. Bravery and creativity lives, and if you are Phil Rumble creating the gorilla campaign, the glass and a half dairy milk thing in like the late two thousands, and you've had your you've had, I think his name was what was the CEO's name was it Todd Stelzer or something? I can't remember. Dangle your job in front of you and say, "Listen, I get it. You've had this vision. You've got the Phil Collins. You've got a big monkey. You've got a drum kit. You're not showing the product or the packaging. You know, if this fails, you're going to be out of a job, right?" Your film rumble, and you go, yeah, 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 but I kind of, that, yeah, it doesn't make any sense, and I can't really write it down in a way that the data people are going to understand it. But this is going to work, why? Because instinctively I get it, I know it. Suddenly you are rewriting somebody that you're, you're, you're departing from any template of advertising in FMCG or CPG that says show the bloody pack shots, and you're going instead show a monkey on the drums, right, to mm-hmm. an eighties to an eighties hero track. And the crazy ironic thing is not only did it work and and, and it was super successful, but then (laughs) every other marketer was like to their agency, can you give me a gorilla? Yeah. You're missing the point. The gorilla isn't the template. The gorilla is the the equivalent of whatever you now need to find for your, it's not gonna work for Dettol. It's not gonna work for bathroom cleaner.
0: And this is why I'm a massive advocate of the jobs to be done approach to uh, innovation and solution development with your customers. You've got to really understand how to interview your customers about their real journey. And that's the job that marketers, the product developers, the sellers should all be doing consistently. When we look at how customers really come to their decisions, you need to understand what outcomes they're looking for. Are they looking for greater speed, stability, better output? What's the chronology they're working on? Are they working on a duration? Are they working on deadlines? Are those deadlines real? Are they related to other things? What experiences have led them to this point? Bob Mester talks about a beautiful example of a guy apparently spontaneously buying a mattress at Costco. And what happened was he came to the um, end of his journey with the little trolley, and he touched a couple of these mattresses spoke to his wife for a couple of seconds, disappeared. 10 minutes later, he came back with one of those long trolleys. So he popped the mattress on it and 800 bucks and off he went. And it looked like a spontaneous purchase. When they interviewed him, the journey began four years before when they originally bought a really expensive mattress. And within six months, he started getting backache because he was significantly bigger than his wife. And for three and a half years, he suffered backache until his wife suffered backache. But he'd already done all the research. So he knew everything about mattresses. So when he spotted one, he knew what the price was. And he thought, that's a really good deal. Tapped her on the shoulder and said, I'm going to get this. And she said, yes. Off he went, got the trolley, and bought it. But to Costco, it looked like a spontaneous purchase.
1: I mean, I'm so tired of having the attribution conversation in B2B (laughs) scale-ups. And and having and having to having to bite the bullet and pragmatically, just so that we can all get on with the bloody job, understand that somehow they're going to measure it and figure out, but but then having smart marketers in jobs on my team who can say, Yeah, 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 I know that salesperson X and marketer Y just took the credit for winning huge brand Z. But I'm telling you right now that I can see that brand. Buying into our marketing and engaging with our marketing as long as two years back, and they've been in and out, and they've downloaded this, they've attended that, but it's really difficult. And I think some some point you've got to be pragmatic in order to move on. But 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 yeah, that's the data that doesn't seem to influence anyone. There's data well, it's over small here. Small data. It. Yeah,
0: it's the small data we've got to pay attention to. It's the CS data that's the real treasure trove. But what does everyone fixate on? Or all this new business bollocks? Who cares? Listen to what your customers are actually saying to you. Listen for their workarounds. Listen for their struggling moments. Listen for the unmet need. Interrogate and find out. Find out what the customer really needs and wants and the demand that is not being met by anybody. And then turn up with that. If you want to differentiate in a crowded market, you better have a window to the customer, and you better put the customer at the heart of everything everyone in your business does. And this is part of the issue that, I, and the reason I was challenging you is the lack of alignment between marketing, sales, product,
1: finance. So, not in my world. Yes, I see that. I I, I, I have a message for internal and internal recruiters and and headhunters out there as well. Honestly, I've been out here now on the market doing some freelance and contracting, but also having conversations. I did a piece for LinkedIn to let people know I'd gone and encouraged people to get in touch the way you do. I've had conversations galore. I've built products for workshops. There is some serious, serious business. Uh, and marketing talent out there looking for the next role. It's a buyer's market. And I would say to recruiters, step up and buy. If you were ever going to invest in the skills and know-how and creative approach that an experienced marketer brings to a growth story in a tough economic climate, right now is the time. There is some big, big, big talent out there. And I'll tell you what else. Your broad brush painting of the market, which I agree with, which is product and sales and marketing, simply isn't aligned. In my world and in the worlds of the people I'm talking to, those problems have long been solved on our teams. We considered ourselves one team as a commercial organization and had things working beautifully. And this podcast, more than any other, I think, that I've been on recently and that I'm going to be on in the next two weeks, is a chance for me to be a bit loud and bolshy and revolutionary because of the the nature of yourself and the nature of the content you put out there. So I can be out there waving the flag and I can be a bit of a loud mouth. But I'm telling you now, the things that you promote, the the ideas and 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 messages you promote, the best of us are already doing that shit, and it yeah, works, and it works, and it grows a so company. It yeah,
0: it's not like I've invented anything. I know that everything I do is derivative. The only thing I've ever done that's remotely original is combining it in a unique way. Yes, um, and in all honesty, I can't do that without the help of others, and this is the key because I think. Because we've spent so long with this industrial age model, which is we compete and we carry a sharp knife and we trust no one. And if we coexist, we do so reluctantly. And if we collaborate, it's done at arm's length. You don't give your partners your good stuff. Uh, You don't trust them. So you have thick legal documents. And wherever necessary, you fuck them over for the commission so your valuation looks good, uh, even though it upsets their cash flow. All of that kind of stuff. That's that's old hat and unacceptable as far as I'm concerned. Uh, What we need to do is we need to start thinking around the customer. And whilst you as a team had done that, my challenge now is those companies need to start thinking in terms of the ecosystem that the customer has surrounding them, their suppliers. And if you don't learn how to market through those partner networks, you're probably going to be yeah. very small. Friends.
1: Well, it's it's about being market oriented as well, isn't it? It's about understanding that as a company and as a team, as a leadership team or as a board, you don't know anything, let alone everything. And you have to be comfortable with not assuming that your customers are just like you would like them to be or just like you've written down in your latest customer persona doc, or just like you are, that they have to be, you know, building your entire strategy around having, talked regularly and in depth to your customers. And and we don't do that. There's not enough of that. Certainly not in B2B. OK, let's throw
0: one final grenade then. In the last seven years, we've seen MarTech explode and sales tech and enablement and all that shit. There's probably, what, 12,000 MarTech vendors out there. And I cannot see any value in almost any of them. And the the tech stack has just exploded yeah. while average quota attainment has halved. Yeah. What's your advice? What's, what's for the point? Yeah. That, well, what, what's your advice for anyone auditing their tech stack? What's the, what's absolutely essential, and then they can do without the other shit, um, and they can maybe focus yeah. on uh, humanizing their marketing and selling a bit.
1: Three stages, really. Listen to your customer, use the insight to build a strategy, stick to the strategy, and from there you will know what you do and don't need from your marketing stack. You'll know what you're trying to achieve. It sounds too simple. I
0: mean, yeah. No, it doesn't sound too simple. It sounds just about right.
1: For the book, I interviewed Scott Brinker. And something I didn't put in there... And Scott Brinker, for those of you listeners who uh, who maybe aren't aware, is the guy that builds that enormous chief martech landscape every two years to show a once-was-useful-but-no-longer-useful no yeah. infographic of all the different yeah. marketing technologies. And, you know, he said... I sometimes go to these guys websites and I can't tell you what they do from what they you know they're talking they're just talking my cha-
0: plowed into
1: them my challenge to him and I didn't put this in the book but I will put it in a blog at some point he was so lovely about it is I said you know when I was actually running my own agency and advising martech new martech players I would say to them don't try and get on the martech chief landscape in fact, make a big fucking thing for PR's sake out of refusing to be on it or not wanting to be on it. And they were like, why, why? We want to be on it. I was like, it used to be useful when it was 100 of you, but now it's literally anti-brand. It's me, my logo, you're a pixel-less, crushed to a pixel or two and crushed into the box with a ton of other pixels, all claiming they do the same thing you do. I can't see myself on it, even though I'm on it five times, It's literally anti-brand. And I said to him, I once advised a client, they weren't brave enough to do it, but I once advised a client to make a big thing in the press about refusing to be on your anti-lands because they were proud of their brand and didn't want it crushed into a pig pen. And he said, wow, you're a snotty bastard. (laughs) And I said, I "I was going to write to you and say, see if I could get a response from you, just to say, this is what we're doing. Can you give us a response? And he said his letter would have been something like, congratulations on a brilliant idea, Aren't you the pompous one? You know, which I loved. Um, but it's but it but you know you're right. The Martech stack has now become—it's a hindrance. It's, it, it's become almost you know a collection of status symbols or tick boxes, and that's where marketers go from smart and creative and brave and an engine of growth to just stupid because we collect this stuff, we pay for it, we wonder why it's not getting results. We then sometimes, and I have to say this. We don't fabricate the results, but we pick and choose selectively the results we, we, we run upstairs through we the need door to report. Figure out what the hell you need to do to grow your business that's different from your competitors and anyone else ever. It's all about you and your product and your market and your, op- your opportunity, and then build a Martech stack around it so you understand what you're doing.
0: So often, marketing depends on A B testing. Which is, I mean, it's, it's like giving um, you know, Michelangelo crayons. What, what, why is it they um, use the least effective of the measures as their go-to?
1: I don't think testing is ineffective. I think it has to be one of a range of tactics you no, use. No, I'm saying A-B
0: a, B testing is among the least effective. Interviewing, for example,
1: would be significantly more useful. Right, exactly, exactly. But and I, then I, being able to I trace think a, B, where the revenue a, actually comes from would be more useful. I think A/B testing isn't isn't isn't. It, I, I disagree that A/B testing is ineffective. I think it's rendered ineffective by the way we use it. So I think if you A/B test something today and measure it tomorrow and take the results by Friday up to the board, you've, mis- you've misunderstood how how people behave. It can be an indicator, but it shouldn't be the indicator.
0: Okay, Mark. Sadly, we've come to time because I could chat to you for hours. You've got a golden ticket, and you can go back and whisper in the idiot ear of Mark, age twenty three what one choice bit of advice would you give him he'd have probably have ignored?
1: I would say, Mark, the things that make you different and the things that you think you need to hide in order to fit in professionally are actually the things that will bring you your greatest happiness, pride, and confidence. So indulge them. You're not wrong and they're not right.
0: Cool. And how can people get a hold of you?
1: They can get a hold of me right now through LinkedIn or M-C-H-O-U-E-K-E, that's mshwakey at gmail.com. And uh, if anybody of your listeners uh, quotes you and cites you or well, this podcast and wants a copy of the book at a at a half price with a signature, I'll do that for them as well.
0: Lovely, thank you very much, Mark Reiki. Thank you. Thank you. So this is Marcus Caffey signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this, then please like, comment, share and subscribe, tag someone who'd benefit from it and pop across your favorite podcast uh, platform and leave a review, an honest one. Tell the truth. And if you think I'm horrible, feel free to tell me because I know it already, but I could do with the feedback. If you want to get a hold of me, Marcus at last And there will be a link if you want to talk about coaching or training. Speak to you soon. Take care. Happy selling. Bye-bye.